Yeah, we're going to leave it on. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, Sarah said it makes my head shiny if it's on. So, thank you, Doug. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 is going to be our passage this morning. And this is one of several passages in Scripture that we call a doxology. A doxology is um, another word for praise, worship, giving glory to God. And what Paul is doing here at the end of Romans chapter 11 is after giving us an extended exposition of the gospel and of God's plan for the Jews and the Gentiles, after laying before us a feast of rich theology, before moving to the practical application of all of that theology, he wants us to pause and join him in worship of the God who has accomplished all these things and planned all these things and revealed all these things. Now, theology can be dry, and so can brisket. But both of them, if they're done right, can call forth praise. And that's what Paul has done in this letter, is he has laid before us a rich feast of theology. He has unfolded for us the good news of the coming of the Son of God, His death and resurrection for sinners, and how that brings about our death to sin and our new life in Christ, and how His death has accomplished a propitiation, a absorbing of God's wrath against our sin, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has unfolded for us how God has been faithful to His promises to Abraham and Isaac and Israel, His promises to the nation of Israel, even though many of the Jews rejected the Messiah when He came. He has unfolded for us how God has planned through the rejection of Israel, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, so that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the Jews then will become jealous of the blessings the Gentiles have received, so that they will then turn to the Messiah and receive the blessings originally promised to them, so that God, having consigned all to disobedience, Paul says, will show mercy to all And if we get that story and those promises, if we grasp some of that theology that Paul has laid out for us, we ought to then respond in worship, in praise, in song, in doxology. When we had to shift the pattern of our worship service, where the sermon is now at the beginning and the singing is at the end, I mentioned to some of you that there's biblical justification for preaching first and then singing. This is one of the passages that provides that justification. Paul doesn't start Romans chapter 1 with a doxology. He could have, right? Because there's lots. He and the Romans already knew about God that would give them reason to praise him. But he doesn't start with doxology. Instead, he unfolds the truth about God and His plan and His mercy and His love for chapter upon chapter upon chapter. And then he says, now let's sing. Now let's praise the Lord. And he's following the pattern established by Moses in the Old Testament. 
Remember when God delivered the, the uh, Israelites from bondage in Egypt. And he brought them out through many uh, judgments, many signs and wonders. And he brought them to the edge of the Red Sea. And as the Egyptians were closing in on them, he parted the Red Sea. And he brought them through on dry land. And he brought the waters crashing down on the Egyptians. So that the Israelites saw their enemies dead on the seashore. And what's the next thing they did? They worshipped. They sang a song in Exodus 15. They responded to God's work with worship. And that is what Paul is calling us to do here in these verses. So let me read for us Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, the first word that we need to key in on here in verse 33 is the word depth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. As we have made our way through the book of Romans, probably that word has come to your mind over and over and over. This, this chapter is deep. This passage is deep. This letter is deep. Paul has led us into some deep waters in the letter to the Romans. And sometimes we've had to say, we're not 100% sure even what all this might mean. And the reason for that is not because Paul is deep, though he was a deep thinker. The reason is because God is deep. God has a depth to his riches, a depth to his wisdom, a depth to his knowledge that calls forth the deepest writing that Paul could muster under the inspiration of the Spirit, the deepest thinking that you and I can muster as we follow Paul's inspired thoughts. And yet even still, we know and Paul knows we cannot fully plumb the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He points first to the depth of God's riches. What does he mean by that? Well, in this letter, he has already spoken in, in Romans 2.4 about the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. In Romans 9.23, he speaks of the riches of God's glory. In Ephesians 1.7, he speaks of the riches of God's grace. Nothing that God possesses does He possess in moderation. Even some of the greatest men in history, the greatest athletes in history, they're not great at everything. They're great at some things, but even they have weaknesses. They have flaws. We, we even talk about an Achilles heel, right? Everybody has some kind of weakness, some kind of flaw, some kind of fault, or something that they're not great at. God has none of those. Everything He possesses, He possesses fully and richly and abundantly. And those riches that He has... He does not hoard, but He pours out for us. 
So in Ephesians 1.7, it says uh, that the riches of His grace, right? That it is the forgiveness of our trespasses that we receive according to the riches of His grace. So His grace is poured out for us in forgiveness. In Romans 9.23, He speaks of the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. Those riches of glory He pours out for those that he shows mercy to. In Romans 2.4, when it speaks of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, Paul says those riches are meant to lead you to repentance. Those riches are for your good. He speaks next of the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. We have just seen in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10, and especially in chapter 11, how rich, God, how deep God's knowledge and wisdom are as they are displayed in His plan for saving the Jews and the Gentiles. He has unfolded for us a plan, I think it's safe to say, that none of us would ever have come up with. That none of us would ever have expected. It was so surprising that Paul had to explain it to people who were confused and perplexed and perhaps even doubting the faithfulness of God because of what they were witnessing. But Paul said, I I need to tell you a mystery. I need to reveal to you something God has kept hidden for a time. But now that he wants you to know, I want you to understand God's plan for saving his people and those who are not his people. Saving the Jews and saving the Gentiles. And we have seen his wisdom and knowledge unfolded in the gospel, in the sending of his son, and how that meets the need of our sin and separation from God, and how how God has saved us from his own wrath by his son's willingness to take our place upon the cross and experience our death, our punishment, and then rise again, securing our eternal salvation. Many of us, no doubt, have tried to solve other people's problems or had other people try to solve our problems. It doesn't always go as well as we would hope. We usually don't know as much as we need to. We're not as adept at understanding the many nuances of the human heart as perhaps we think that we are or realize that we need to be. Have you ever witnessed or encountered any other understanding of the depths of human sin? And have you ever seen any better plan to resolve the brokenness of the human heart, to bring about the kind of reconciliation that we are all aware that we need, both between our Creator and between our fellow brothers and sisters and men and women around us? Have you ever seen someone come up with a more perfect plan for redeeming people, for setting the world right than what we have seen in the book of Romans? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments And how inscrutable are his ways. What does he mean by that? How unsearchable are his judgments? His judgments are his decisive actions. His decisions. 
Right? When a judge makes a judgment, that is a determination about what has happened and what needs to be done. How unsearchable are God's judgments? How, how unfathomable are His decisive actions? It doesn't mean that we cannot understand them at, at some level. It doesn't mean that we can't understand them in principle. But it means that they cannot be fully fathomed. We cannot uh, plumb the depths of all that God is up to, that all that God has decided to do. And His ways are inscrutable. As Isaiah says, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes when we look at the world and try to discern what God is up to, we just have to scratch our heads. And say, we don't know. Sometimes we look around at what's going on in the world or what's going on in our own lives. And we wonder if God is up to anything at all. Or if the whole thing is just careened out of control. Why is that? It's not because God is not up to something. It's not because he's not working. It's because we cannot see or fathom or even begin to search out the depths of what God is doing. We cannot discern all of His ways. We, we cannot pinpoint all of His plans and purposes and how they are unfolding at any given moment. That's why we had prophets who God spoke to so they could say, this is what God is doing. You can't tell just by looking around, but God has spoken to me and told me to tell you this is what He's up to. Because His ways are inscrutable. Right? Haven't we all had the experience of asking God for help or for direction or for some kind of clarity about what we should do and yet we continue to feel like we are walking blindfolded in a dark wood. We have no idea where we're going. No idea what we're supposed to be doing. No idea why all these things are happening. And then we look back months, years, decades later and see how perfectly and wisely God led our every step even while we felt so confused and had no idea what was going on. It's because His ways are inscrutable. They're beyond finding out. We cannot always tell what He's doing. And not everybody likes that. Sometimes we're tempted to complain about that. But do we really want a God who is on our plane, on our level, who thinks like us and always does the kinds of things that make sense to us and that we can figure out on half a second's reflection. Those kinds of gods don't last because they're not worth having. A God who is like us in that sense is no God at all. We want, we need, we have a God who is greater than us, higher than us, wiser than us. And because of that, we can't always understand what He's doing. But because, we, but because we know He's good, we always know that whatever He is up to, we can trust Him. We can follow Him. We can walk by faith even when we have no sight. Because we know He's good. And we know He's at work. 
And we know that even if he told us what we was do he was doing, there's a good chance we wouldn't understand it all anyway. So, next Paul says, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? If his ways are inscrutable, if his judgments are unsearchable, isn't that because none of us know the mind of the Lord? Isn't it true that none of us have ever dared to give him counsel, or at least have not ever thought that the counsel that we gave him is something he should actually accept or something that he is in need of. No one knows the mind of the Lord. No one can plumb the depths of the mind of God. If you drop your plumb line, as it were, into the mind of the Lord, you would, it would never, would never reach the bottom. You can never plumb all of the depths of the mind of the Lord. We cannot know all that He is thinking. And we ought not to be surprised by that because you don't even know what the person next to you is thinking. And the person next to you shares your human nature and probably shares some of your same experiences and may even be somebody you've shared much of your life with. And yet you, you still can't tell what they're thinking at any given moment. So how are you going to know the mind of the Lord? Who has a divine nature. Who has always existed. Who was never created. Who is the only being in the universe who can truly say, I am. We can't understand the mind of the Lord. We can't know what he's thinking, what he's doing, unless he reveals it to us. That's why the Bible is so important. That's why the Word of God is such a precious treasure, because only here can we know for sure that we are encountering what God has thought and what God wants us to know that he's up to. Who has been his counselor? Paul says. Now, we do at times try to give God counsel, right? Tell him what we think he should do. But usually when we do, it's not too long afterward that we say, I'm so glad you didn't take my advice. I'm so glad you didn't do what I asked. I'm so glad you didn't answer that prayer the way that I hoped that you would. Counsel is for those who cannot see all sides who cannot imagine all possible scenarios, who cannot envision all the options, and who cannot decide on the best course of action alone. Kings need counsel. You and I need counsel. God does not need counsel. There's nothing you can tell Him that He doesn't know. There's nothing you could envision for Him that He has not already seen and foreseen. There is no decision that we could prompt him to make that he could not make on his own without any help, without any input, without any advice. He does not need anyone's counsel. He has no counselors around his throne. He has worshipers around his throne. A king with worshipers instead of counselors is in trouble. God alone doesn't need counselors. 
He invites worshipers. Verse 35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Millions and millions of people have brought to the Lord sacrifices. They brought animals under the Old Testament sacrificial system. They brought food. We bring tithes and offering gifts of money and time. Have any of those gifts ever created for God a debt? No. Why not? Because everything that everyone has ever given to God, He first gave to them. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Even if we give our very life to Him, who gave us life, who gave us breath, who gave us health, everything we have comes from Him. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven, from the Father of lights. All that we have is on loan to us from God. And so nobody can give God anything, even if they give God everything, and cause God to owe them anything. Because everything belongs to the Lord. As one person put it, everything that is, is His. Job says in Job 41.11, which is what... Paul seems to be quoting here in verse 36. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. When we encounter this God, the true God, we will be humbled. Think about what happened when Moses encountered God at the burning bush. Think about what happened when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Think about what happened when John, in Revelation chapter 1, encountered the risen Christ face to face in his heavenly vision. The same thing ought to happen in some measure every time we encounter God in the scriptures. We ought to be in awe. We ought to be amazed. We ought to be humble. And from that humility ought to come forth praise to the one who belongs in the highest place. Paul concludes this doxology with a beautiful last line in verse 36 where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. All things are from Him because He is the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or as we said earlier from James, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything we have, everything that is, everything we see, all of it comes from Him. And all things are through Him. This, I think, is a reference to the Son, to the Son of God. Because all throughout the Scriptures, we are told about the Son's um, agency in creation. That when the Father 
created everything and spoke everything into existence, He did so through the eternal Son of God. So, for example, in John 1, after it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in the beginning... He was with God. Then in verse 3 it says, All things were made through Him. We know the Father made everything. And John says, He made everything through His Son. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 1.2 says, But in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also... He created the world. So you can make a pretty strong case for saying that Paul is talking about the Son of God here. Because through Him, all things have come into existence. Or you could point to a text like Acts 17.28, which says that in Him we live and move and have our being. And say not only is it from Him that we existed, but it is through Him that we continue to exist. Every breath. Every beat of our heart is sustained by Him. We exist, we live, we breathe through Him and in Him. And then he says, all things are to Him. Just as everything has come from Him, so everything must be directed back to Him. Every good thing that He has given to us must be poured back to Him in praise and worship and adoration, which is why when John unfolds for us the scene in the heavenly courtroom in Revelation 4 and 5, what we see is creation giving back to God all that He has given to us. In Revelation 4.11, we hear these words, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So every glory, every honor, every power that you have given to us, we now ascribe back to you. We give back to you. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every good thing has come from Him. And every good thing must be given back to Him. Every gift that we give Him is not an attempt to put Him into our debt, but is just a token of our gratitude and recognition and acknowledgement that everything we have still belongs to Him. So there is a depth, Paul wants us to to remember, a depth to the wisdom, power, glory and grace of God that ought to inspire in us humble worship and awestruck praise. We cannot understand all that God is up to, but He has shown us enough for us to see that His wisdom is beyond reckoning and we can in no way compare with Him and there is no need for us to question Him. I'll close us with the words that Jude uses to close his letter. As he says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority 
before all time and now and forever. Amen.